0: Absolutely the most badass and powerful thing you can do is to choose to not react from a place of aggression or defensiveness and to just try to figure out and make myself a roadmap for how I'm supposed to do these next 20 years. Because if I think I've gone through transformation, it's going to double, double, double down because I'm going to wake up and be in my 60s and then in my 70s and my 80s. And the gift of a song is when you hear Joni Mitchell singing both sides now from a 23-year-old perspective and then the new version has dropped an octave and it's just the pathos inside that's incredible. And knowing that as I've now got 20 years of experience singing songs from Let It Die and I hear those words come out of my mouth and I still gain perspective or have certain phrases surprise me, I now try to build myself those little messages in a bottle so that some kind of aspirational future self still gets to Glean and collate these clues. That
1: was Feist, and this is Shiros a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, She Rose Radio. She Rose is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. This week, we have a true Shiro of indie rock with us. Leslie Feist, best known by her last name, Feist, was born in Nova Scotia and grew up in Saskatchewan, then Calgary, and started out singing in an all-girl punk band called Placebo as a teenager. After singing at loud volumes took a toll on her vocal cords, Leslie Feist was forced to go on vocal rest and began teaching herself to play guitar, becoming an instrumentalist at age 19, and started to write and record quieter songs on a four-track recorder. By then, she had moved to Toronto and found a rich musical community that included her future bandmates in Broken Social Scene and her one-time roommate, Peaches, appearing on her iconic album, The Teaches of Peaches, and touring with her behind that album. In 1999, Leslie Feist self-released her first solo album under the name Feist, Monarch. And while Broken Social Scene began to find success following their second album, 2002's You Forgot It in People, Leslie continued to pursue her solo career. And in 2004, her breakthrough sophomore album, Let It Die, was released going on to win the Juno Award for Best Alternative Rock Album, while Feist took home the trophy for Best New Artist. The game-changing album The Reminder followed in 2007, spawning the hit single One, Two, Three, Four, which got featured in an Apple commercial and made Feist a bona fide star. The Reminder went gold in the United States, multi-platinum in Canada, won five Juno Awards, including Album of the Year, and garnered Feist four Grammy nominations. In 2011, Feist ret- returned with her fourth album, Medals, again achieving massive success and recognition. The album receiving accolades as one of the best of the year, a Brit Award nomination, and made history by becoming the first female artist ever to win the Polaris Prize in 2012. Her fifth album, Pleasure, followed in 2017, landing on every year-end best-of list. And while there's consistency to the accolades and recognition she receives for each highly anticipated album, one thing is for sure. Feist does not repeat herself and across over two decades has continued to evolve, experiment, and delight her fans. A few months ago, she returned with an incredible sixth album, Multitudes, which was also the name of an intimate live show in the round that she'd been doing over the last couple of years. And just days ago, Multitudes was announced as shortlisted for the Polaris Prize. I'm so thrilled to welcome Feist as this week's Shiro in the spotlight. Leslie Feist, welcome to Shiro's. I am so happy and honored to have you here. Thank you so much, Carmel so great to be here. Wow. We have to congratulate you on a few things. Becoming a mom and yeah. a new record, Multitudes. This is your first album since 2017's Pleasure. Talk to us a little bit about the genesis of Multitudes. What happened in the interim that led to the songs and the pandemic happened in the interim as well?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I ran into someone yesterday. It was someone I met at the Bounce Center for the arts. A poet is like, was that eight years ago (laughs) or something? And she said, no, no, that was 2018. It's just remarkable that anything right before the pandemic and my daughter really feel like they're from another life. They feel so long ago because the last three years, four years of this just been so dense. So Mm. yeah, locating myself in time is helpful when you've got a person who's growing taller. Sort of, okay, well, that's what time looks like, but what it feels like is an entirely different thing. And then songs yeah. are maybe a better way to put the otherwise unidentifiable feeling of what time is, because mm. I can capture a little fragment, a little filament of a feeling of from a specific time and then almost like lightning in a bottle it and then throw it into the endless what is to come in terms of time. And then it'll always be intact. It'll always have that message for me inside of it. So, yes, it's been a really elasticized few years because sometimes it's feeling very tight and sometimes very expansive. So I would say writing is usually not something I do prolifically and quickly and often. It's something that happens when it wants to because I tour so much. It always looks like there's a lot of years between records, but it's it's kind of misconstrued by writing 2011 and then 2016. Or when did you say Pleasure came out? 2016, I think? 17. 17. Yeah. Oh, whoops. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that seems even longer. It seems like right. 11 to 17. <laughs> but I toured for maybe two or three years. And then you need a minute to just sit and be still and remember what it is to have a regular life that doesn't involve so much, you know, propulsion. <laughs> you know, the world's blurring next to you as you just keep moving. And then writing would usually come kind of after that because I don't write while I'm on the road. So well, what was usually is no longer. So it's hard to even compare to what was. So what was in this case was writing more insistently, probably because my daughter had arrived. And everyone I've talked to
1: that is a mom talks about how things happen in like compressed amounts of time. So it has to be scheduled in. So even if you aren't a person that usually approaches your art that way it kind of forces that did you find that that was
0: true for you yes and I guess I'm lucky that I had one of my best friends words ringing in my ear because she became a mom maybe six years before I did and I always identify her and her daughter as my gateway love it was sort of the love that I was like wait a second if you can have that feeling and still be you over here with me then that is a dimension and that I feel like I can try to cultivate or step towards myself. And her project that she finally launched, which happened just shortly after her daughter was born, was called La Force. And she's in broken social scene as well. And before that had a, a duo with her husband called Aurora. they made one of my favorite records of all time called In the Pines. But her own step towards what she wanted to make in her own name, her own songwriting, was sort of compelled by her daughter. She, she just felt like, A different kind of fire underneath her, her reasons for not having stepped towards a previous, you know, or whatever you can explain away for an eternity until there's something that's compelling you from a way deeper place. And that is maybe if you feel time is finite, but also your responsibility lands so differently on your shoulders when you have a kid that maybe, I mean, what I can say for me, I felt grateful that I had a long term relationship that preceded her arriving of writing to find myself. And anytime I felt kind of lost, I could write myself a compass point or something to understand it better, to get out of it. I would sing myself into the future in a way. And as soon as there's this person in your arms who, in a very strange way, and I mean it's happened as long as humans have been here, that probably this feeling of vertigo of wait, now I'm in touch with the human experience in a whole other way. And I'm feeling responsibility to naming my truth, responsibility to, um, I don't know, continue to build whatever's resilient and good inside myself. And writing has always been a way to, I guess, make words become reality. That makes a lot of
1: sense. And I think about how the music coming out of the pandemic, I've been finding, at least in these conversations with women, has been so much more vulnerable. Like, vulnerability has been a word that I've been mm. hearing so much. And I think it's just that time of the past few years kind of refocused our lenses onto things that are important and reprioritizing. And, mm. you know, so many people quit their jobs and whatever. And lots of women had babies. You know, um, (laughs) and I've been having a lot of these conversations, too, with like, I never thought that I would or I wasn't sure that I would. Or as a musician, I didn't know that I could. But then I was like, well, this seems like the right time. Did any of those thoughts lead up to the moment that you chose to become a mom?
0: Yeah, of course, because I didn't gestate her with my body because she's adopted. I like to say we adopted each other because there's nothing about her that makes me think she received her fate from me. There's no way that's true. (laughs) We are co-authoring our predestined fate because there's no doubt that we are meant to be doing this together. But I think a lot of adopted families feel that way because it's like a soul gestation. There's something about our biology that's like, you know, we're housed inside of these bodies and they can do all sorts of incredible things for us. But yeah. in my case, because my body wasn't the way I became a mom, I can only say that there was a different thing that gestated. And it took yeah. longer. It's sort of like, you know, elephants are pregnant for two and a half years or whatever the number is. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. bears are pregnant for a few months or whatever, because their baby their baby cubs are born as like tiny as mice. And so there's all sorts of different lengths of time. In my case, the soul gestation, I can't even really say when it began. It probably began in my twenties. And even the asking myself, does my body want to do this? Always, of course, believing it would happen inside of a partnership. That's the biological truth. You need that. You know, it makes sense. There's sort yeah. of like a an unavoidable fact about that. And I always thought, okay, well, then a love that's sort of like an altar and you place a baby on it in a way you say, okay, our partnership will now like have a, a result from the Venn diagram where we join together here's this person that can exist from that and that is so beautiful and then as life went on and that wasn't the way that I was finding myself moving into whatever adulthood was going to fold to become yeah I guess I can say <laughs> you know, long answer to your brief question is it was a very long evolution and I had to burn through a lot of shame I had to burn through a lot of identifying myself somehow from the outside rather than from the inside and as soon as I, like I, I like to use the word locate, like locate, like I'd, found, I'd lost something and I found it and it was me inside of my interior experience of my life, not thinking about it from the outside or what it looked like or, you know, shame comes from some misconstrued externalized sense of self. I had nothing to be ashamed of on the inside. In fact, quite the contrary. So once I shook all that off, I really kind of like a gong. I aligned inside of the fact that I wanted to offer myself as a mother to someone and experience that together. And yeah, the fact that the pandemic dropped four months after she was born, it was just sort of a very scary, but so beautiful to concentrate my attention on her and not to feel that I was needing to tend some former sense of self. Like I said, all those years of movement, staying still isn't 100% natural to me. In fact, Mary Hickson was doing Mm -hmm. another people type festival in Moscow. And so I had planned, I was going to bring this six month old baby with me. And we we're going to go live in Moscow for a couple of weeks with Mary and do another people festival a residency. And I mean, that sounds like really fun. Anything where Mary Hickson's around is fun. And the people festival is <laughs> fun. But it's I'm fun, so yeah. glad I wasn't thinking it was all right to get on a plane and continue to tend to that other self. I got to really just arrive and be present with this little person. So it was the double-edged sword of the pandemic. Like so much isolation, very disorienting. But I'm so grateful in retrospect that I just got to stay still with her. Where did these
1: songs begin? Is there a song on here that was kind of an entry point
0: into Multitudes? Um, Well, it's funny because it's like a song that existed long before the others say. You could say it was The Seed. Or the Mm. starter yeast, the mother of the sourdough or something. (laughs) It came before. But it's funny because they're outliers or they're dangling out in the open, exposed to any amount of influence because they're a song that isn't like inside of a body of work or it isn't co-referencing its identity against other songs or something. So enlightening, I'd say, came first because I found that song at the Banff residency or at least the kind of genesis of it. But then it was just living in my computer, not really knowing what it was about or what's meant to take shape. And then I'd say Red Wing probably came next. And again, those two had not much to do with one another. So I thought, well, they're probably for different types of projects or maybe one of them will bring me towards whatever the record's going to feel like. But meanwhile, I was going through an adoption process, which was obliterating the sun. And I wasn't really thinking now's the time to write. I was thinking now's the time to make sure I do something before I write myself into another album which is going to propel me around the earth for a few more years. I need to do something else before I let that happen, you know? So it wasn't really like in a record-making state of mind. But when I was in those first few weeks where my daughter was there in the, what are they, the crepuscule, they call it in French, this sort of dusk-like kind of half-light of kind of the -the round-the-clock feeding of a new being and understanding her eyes aren't quite focusing. And in that state, I wrote forever before Or at least I found the riff and like the chorus and the sense of what the grander question is. Because at that moment, I understood that what I was saying, that kind of resilient, interior, optimistic self that gestated this person into being in my arms. You know, I understood I can write a song that tells that whole story from, you know, all the questions you ask yourself to the arrival of the sleeping person right next to you. And I think probably forever before might have been. My understanding of that this deeper collaboration was going to be with my daughter in the sense that I was going to need to be eking out moments, like you said, compressing these times that I had where she's asleep and tending to the story, the language underneath the feelings I was having, and that that might help me locate myself inside this mystery and lightning and red-winged. In a way, those three songs became the shape. They kind of drew the tripod. They made it stable. They made the idea that some songs can exist somewhere inside these three sort of diametrically opposed extremes because they are very different songs from one another. But they made a shape that helped me understand. And also, I think at that point, I understood I didn't need to be one or the other. This choice, like this binary of I'm either a mother or I'm a musician. I'm like, actually... I'm a woman who chose to become a mother and if I cease to exist because of the mothering itself to the woman who wanted to do this, then this sort of an empty proposition. Then what am I doing? There was sort of this equation that started to make itself clear that one could help the other. You know, mm. It was the musician who even thought to be a mother. So why should she cease to exist once I had this new responsibility? Why would I want my daughter to believe that she had the power to eclipse the sun at so, so tiny? She needs to be collaborating in a kind of a universe, in a constellation, in a flow. We need an ebb and flow between the two of us. And of course, these are all thoughts in my head. All she really needs is to feel my presence, you know. But I needed to confabulate, I don't know, a way to justify not losing myself inside of that endeavor. I've never begun But forever before Been using a Like I knew I had more, one breath at a time. The only one there. Another day to be alone. In. Another lake to throw a stone in.
1: Leslie Feist is here with us on Shiro's, the new album. Her sixth is Multitudes. I'm Carmel Holt, and we just heard Forever Before, we were just talking about becoming a mother and adopting your daughter that led to or was part of and in collaboration with, in conversation with Hmm. these songs. The other part that I understand was also spending some deep quality time with your father and then his sudden passing during the pandemic. Would you be willing, able to talk about the intersection of joy and grief and how that found its
0: way into these songs. Well, certainly I was thinking more about my parents before they were parents. You know, once I was cluing into the crucible-like intensity of caring for a little person because it's entirely different than whatever I whatever you observe from the outside isn't what it is on the inside you know it's like anything you can't know it until you're in it and so i was i was feeling my own mortality in a way i hadn't before because all of a sudden my life it's not only for me now now i need it extra i need it twice as much cuz i need it for her you know and i was feeling that about my parents because i had known them a long time and you can feel a kind of hubris like I know who they are because I've known them my whole life and then in the instant that I have you have someone in your arms I was recognizing all of the me that preceded her what she will know of me and that Mm -hmm. she'll never know the me that preceded her arriving and so I started to think about my parents in that light you know and it's almost like um, chess pieces or something because as I shifted the pond shifts forward two spaces to start the game. It shifts me another two spaces deeper into the story. And then my parents are shifted two more spaces. And somehow there's like a conveyor belt or something of a timeline that arrived. And luckily, I was able to talk to my dad, my mom, too, about how strange this all was. And, like, you know, all that you can do is laugh when you've been doing it forever. They'd been doing it forever. It's kind of like getting a kick out of the fact that I finally was understanding this thing that's invisible until you know it. But wh- another thing that's mm-hmm. invisible until you know it is grief and and I had had the experience losing my mom's mom was I was very close to her. and when she died, it sort of was a new element was made clear to me almost like air, water, earth, fire, you know, these are the bases of life and then death becomes another oh, that's another thing that we are all doing that we are not aware we're doing. It's sort of invisible until you see it sort of thing. And then yeah, my my dad passed away. Very suddenly, when my daughter was about one or maybe one and a half, time has gotten a bit hard to keep track of. I can't really say that it influenced the songs because the songs were already mostly written when my dad passed away. But he passed away, uh, you know, a day before I was flying back to Toronto to begin incubating this sort of experimental theater project that was going to happen through the pandemic, this show in the round that was going to have a kind of a dramaturgical arc to it and something that I was going to be stepping a little bit outside of my gig conditioning of this is the way it goes down and this is the way it's gone down thousands and times and it always will. The pandemic afforded me this other with Mary Hickson and Robbie Lackritz, my manager and co-producer for the record, And a couple of other artists from Canada, Heather Goodchild and Colby Richardson, we'd kind of concocted this idea. And Rob Sinclair, who's a production designer who has worked with all sorts of people that I've been impressed by and blown away by, like Peter Gabriel and David Byrne. And we were about to begin building this show, and my dad passed away. And it was the kind of thing where it feels antithetical to be in the midst of grief, but then to keep working on something that, I mean, it's hard to. Feel justified to do anything. Like, why? The question of why bother? I was so dismantled that strangely, the only thing that I found useful to actually address my grief was to be busy and to focus myself on this show, which I didn't think this until much later. I started to feel it maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 shows into the run, which was between Germany and Canada and eventually in the States. I started to understand that. There was kind of a collective grief ritual happening through the show that even the word show started to feel strange or unfamiliar because a show is as I'm showing something or you're, you know, a show. I am up here to orate to you, but it was done in the round. The architecture of the experience was made to bring people into an awareness of themselves, even in space and in light and in proximity to each other, which... Who would have thought it would ever be radical again to share space with people? But they're also looking across at one another. And they're the way it was set up, they weren't able to sink into a red velvet seat and just disappear into the darkness and receive something. It was sort of compelling them to be a part of it, not to mention the production involved video. And they were the subject of the video, the details of them. No one was made to feel exposed or something, but the details of someone's Hand holding another person's hand or their shoes and their socks and their bag on the floor, and you know, a hand over the shoulder of someone behind a chair. You just see this sort of tender touch going on that's like hidden otherwise, and putting it on a massive, you know, two story high screen with the details being in this kind of macro intimacy. It was kind of like a a very thin place, as Mary Hickson called it. She identified the sort of Irish spiritual musical. Collective experience. She called it the thin places where it's almost like collectively people bring like a kind of a rarefied air that almost is like interdimensional. It's almost like opening something that is where feelings live or where feelings are unstagnated and unstuck. And I felt that to be going on. And I certainly was uncharacteristically allowing myself to 100% feel the truth, whatever it was, when I was in this scenario. And it influenced me. And I'd say the losing of my dad, the receiving of this role of mother all found its way into my deeper understanding through that show, because it almost bookended exactly one year. We began developing it, you know, a week after he'd passed. And then the very last show that happened, which was in Stanford in Northern California, completely unexpectedly, I woke up that morning and realized it was the anniversary of my dad's death. And it was the night of the last show. And I was like, how did this happen? I mean, it just happened the other day too, where I woke up in the town where he'd grown up and it was the second anniversary of his death and I'm in the city where he was a child. I'm almost feeling like there's some sort of metaphysical tour management going on where he's in charge of the itinerary because <laughs> it's been strange. And the new show is, we jokingly calling it 2.0, it's built upon all of the same vocabulary and the way to... Share and unguard and compel and create this kind of, I don't know, this opening, but for a larger audience. Because d- during the pandemic, it needed to be reduced. And so we built a show that is for a larger, it's for a, like a standing room floor, but it's still in the round. And I, I would say that the show, more than the record, was influenced by the actual lack of him, the loss of him, the absence of him. Like I located him and, and I. I kind of fleshed out his presence in the having to show up and put my body through what felt impossible, the jeopardy of letting my guard down, which is usually something that shows are not there for, for me. There's a keeping mm. your shit togetherness of, it's kind of like actors, no matter what they're feeling, you know, they could be in deep grief and they need to show up and be this bubbly, effusive character. Like whatever I've been feeling all my life, there's something that a show requires of me that usually those feelings, I got to leave them backstage and then go up and do my job. I don't have a character I play or like an alter ego who I can climb into to protect me. But there's like an element of game face or something that this show didn't have any room for and this new show doesn't have any room for. So I would say that that was the biggest way that I addressed the lack of my dad for sure. In retrospect, that's exactly what was happening. I've always felt like you're good at breaking down the fourth wall. It's wild because I think
1: about the Metals tour. I saw you at BAM in Brooklyn. Mm. You started to bring the audience on stage with you. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, I'd never seen that before.
0: That was kind of a memorable night for me because... Yeah. We'd been on tour in Europe. Having this experience, like the new songs, they were completely unknown to the audience. And I was kind of feeling like I'd kick into the bad in each other and it would just be like silence as if this is something they've never heard and they don't really necessarily want to hear, you know? Yeah. And then yeah. I got to Brooklyn. The new songs were alive in people's minds. It was sort of like all of a sudden it was like a little... Kettle drum, pff, like, and it ignited and that record was alive now in that setting. And Robbie Lagras helped me understand later that it was because people who bought the tickets to the European tour, the record wasn't out yet. So they bought the tickets based upon someone they'd known before, you know. But the Brooklyn show was sort of the first show where tickets came on sale after the record had already come out. I had felt a little dejected, like, oh, man, I'm never going to escape this reminder stuff. (laughs) And in Brooklyn, it's like, oh, okay. you know, the train has left the station. We're still on our way somewhere. We're not just stuck in 2007 forever. You know, we can still go other places together. Thank God. So I might have been especially excited that night. And I probably, you know, I love when that eruption just like comes and tumbles over the front of the stage like a tide or something. The nights where that happens, it's just such a gift. So great. Yeah, Hearing you
1: talk about the
0: current show, I was like,
1: was there a seed that was planted that night about that kind of communal experience?
0: You know, when one couple gets up to start dancing or something in the aisle, it's like, OK, there they are. They're the seed. And now we get to do something different together because you're changing your role. So I get to, too, when it's happening reciprocally and there's this sort of synergy going boop, 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 boop. And the energy mounts up. Those nights that have happened over the years, a night like you're saying, you remember, which I also remember, which is so great. They've happened enough over the years that it was a bit like, how do we make those conditions? Even if they don't say anything, that they are in a different place in themselves. Not Mm. only kind of that beta wave receiving of something, but like playing offense. You're also active. You're actively making choices. And you would be too much of a kindergarten teacher if you were like, okay, now anyone say what you'd like into the air, you know? Lob a thought out at me, you know? It's like that old adage, you can't tell someone what to do, but you can make them think it's their own idea, you know? So somehow already people walking into a venue, maybe they've been to dozens of times and there's a circular platform in the middle and already setting it up so that they're looking at the room in a way they've never looked at it before. And then doing things like that exponentially and keep putting hinges on every expectation, swiveling it into a different axis so that they aren't orienting themselves in any kind of, I'm receiving and not thinking anymore. The conceit keeps shifting under their feet, you know, in a good natured way. Actually, Chile Gonzalez, one of my oldest best friends who's worked on every record with me, we, we were just talking as I was driving over here to do this talk with you. And I was trying to describe to him what was going on and I was like, well, it's like if you're throwing a surprise birthday party for someone and you have to get them kind of mad at you all day, it's better. You know that you've got the best surprise waiting for that person. Then if they're sort of irritated with you throughout the day, like you've forgotten and you keep upping the ante on just how much you don't care about their birthday or that you've totally played down and you've forgotten. Then if they're a little bit irritated and upset, then the surprise is a hundred times better. And he was like, okay, so you're talking some Andy Kaufman territory. And I was like, well, I can't hold an Andy Kaufman. You know, I don't think I have that stamina. That's some mastery at work. But it wasn't like anything ever bad-natured or mean-spirited, but absolutely trying to create conditions for even the smallest pivot to be like, wait a sec, I thought we were dot, 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 you know? And so the show is kind of filled with a bunch of those so that by the end, is it even over? Wait, is it going to keep going? Am I? I'm in my car now. Is the show still happening? I'm at home brushing my teeth, and what's going to is? Is something going to come out of the closet? You know, sort of a little <laughs> halfway between a magic show and an escape room or something, but under the guise of a gig, under the ruse of a gig. Fourth Fice wall, third here. wall, second
1: wall, all the walls, totally. no walls. Oh my god! Oh my <laughs> gosh! I can't wait to see this thing.
0: You are touring. This summer, right? Yeah, but I'm doing a bunch of festivals this summer. The festivals, we can't really. You can't do it. Not really, no. But in September, we'll be in Europe for four weeks doing it there.
1: Feist is here with us on Shiro's. The new album is called Multitudes. Where should we go musically? I want to play another clip of a song. Do you have a favorite on the album or anything that relates to
0: the topics that we've been talking about? I don't know. I suppose there's something about Enlightening where. It's a battle cry to gentleness or something. It's sort of a manifesto for myself when I'm singing it when I'm 63 to remember where I found myself in that internalized sense of self that isn't about what goes on on the outside, but how to feel, I guess, power, but it, it, using a lowercase p because the uppercase p carries so many implications of domination. You need to dominate if you've got uppercase p power. This is sort of a No, no, no. There's power in the intention of gentleness and kindness. That is absolutely the most badass and powerful thing you can do is to choose to not react from a place of aggression or defensiveness and to just try to figure out and make myself a roadmap for how I'm supposed to do these next 20 years. Because if I think I've gone through transformation, it's going to double, double, double down because I'm going to wake up and be in my 60s and then in my 70s and my 80s. And the gift of a song is when you hear Joni Mitchell singing both sides now from a 23-year-old perspective. And then from a, I mean, I don't know, it was like maybe 10 years ago, she did the new version has dropped an octave. And it's just the pathos inside that's incredible. And knowing that as I've now got 20 years of experience singing songs from Let It Die, and I hear those words come out of my mouth and, I still gain perspective or have certain phrases surprise me. I now try to build myself those little messages in a bottle so that some kind of aspirational future self still gets to glean and collate these clues. So I would say lightning might be along the lines of what we've been talking about.
1: Enlightening from the new Feist album, Multitudes. She's our guest on Shiro's. I usually close the interview by asking my guests to do an exercise called the Shiro's Magic Wand. So Leslie Feist, here's the Shiro's Magic Wand. If you held the Shiro's Magic Wand, what would you change for women doing the job of music, any job of music? What would you change for us?
0: Wow. Wow. <laughs>
1: The list is probably long, but what comes to your mind first?
0: Well, I guess I do feel always when I begin again, because putting out a new record is sort of beginning again, you start from scratch, you know, in terms of finding the songs. And so I really plumbed the depths and found what I needed to. And I felt grateful when I did because I felt in alignment with what I recorded. But then I look up from my page, I look up from the work. And I look around me and what isn't starting from scratch is the world around me that has been built up of many years of people coming and going, people coming and going. And the people that have stayed, that have been with me now forever, I feel like someone waved a magic wand over me at some point because these Mm -hmm. collaborators, the closest ones would be Chip Sutherland, my manager, who I discovered to my great fortune, you know, maybe in 2004, 2005, Robbie Lackritz, also 2004, 2005. He began as my tour manager and is now my manager and made the reminder with me and medals with me and now made multitudes with me. And so we're collaborators in a practical way, but also in a musical way. And then there's a lot of other people I've played with and stuff. But the main thing that these long relationships have afforded me is a a real through line of the way we need to treat each other and the way we build our camp to have a lot of self and mutual respect and bring people in who we feel are going to step into whatever role we need filled, but then fill it in, in such an individualistic way that they're going to change what that role even means and what it, we even need from it. And everyone's at their learning edge and growing. And I get to look up and see people pushing themselves to learn something new or grow around me. And it makes me have to show all the way up to do the same. And I would say that the magic wand that was waved over me was many years of enabling myself to say no, to have people that didn't belong in my world and to ask them to no longer be in my world and slowly find my autonomy, I suppose, through letting myself be stronger because the people around me are being strong themselves. If there's a role I need filled where, you know, in any other a scenario, maybe there would be some sort of subordinate feeling of this is someone here to support me. But I do what I can to create a culture where there is no such thing as that. And therefore I'm surrounded by equals and the autonomy that I've gained from that. It's almost like it's more important to me than what happened on the outside, because it means we have this healthy coexistence, this sort of ecosystem on the inside. And I guess if I could wave the magic wand, I would say I've in the early years really felt like I felt hobbled by my gratitude when anyone would help me. And I would feel like I'm up there posturing for my gig where eight people are going to come. And that felt at least there was was an authorship to it and there was an honesty to it. And someone says, I'm going to help you. And if they're going to help you in a way that diminishes the way you like to do things or the words you choose to speak to other people with, or the tone of kindness or presence or someone not doing what you've asked them, they do something else. And then you learn from that and adapt and find some you know, now we're going together somewhere new rather than where I just thought I wanted to go, you know. Anytime anyone was sort of against the tone of that, I felt it took me years to feel entitled to say, I think I would rather move forward without your help than thanks, you know, or whatever, however that would happen. And then the people that are left, it's like we are all still here for an increasingly co-authored reason. And it carries my name. And yet, like I said, I looked up from the page and there they are to carry this record out into the world with me. And like old collaborators like Maki, who co-produced the record with Robbie and I, and now bandmates that have played with me now for almost 10 years. It's sort of like I get to feel like we're going to ride this out till morning together because slowly but surely I now have the people I need and who I think need me. And we need each other for similar reasons. We need each other because we're all kind of we like waking up to the work we need to do that day because we're going to do it together, you know, and. Yeah, I would like to wave the magic wand that you've given me and say, I hope you find your autonomy. I hope you find your collaborators. And you're not going to find it by taking whatever comes. It's by slowly really listening to your heart as to whether someone is helping you be stronger or if they're enabling a sort of a dormancy to happen in you because they're telling you they're going to do it for you. Got to keep being willing to do everything and find the people that are going to empower you to do it not take over for you and then take you somewhere where you didn't want to end up. So maybe autonomy.
1: (laughs) Yes, autonomy. (laughs) Maybe we should close with Of Womankind.
0: Oh, sure. Yes.
1: Is there anything you want to tell us about the song before we go into it?
0: Yeah, Of Womankind showed up as not many songs do, kind of almost intact, beginning to end. It happened with Mushaboom. It happened with Baby Be Simple years ago. A couple others showed up like two-thirds intact. But Womankind came one night when I was doing this project called Song A Day where you have to write an entire song a day for seven days with some friends. It was kind of like a positive peer pressure kind of exercise. We did a few times during the pandemic. We're doing another one in June. I'm really excited about that because it kicks your butt. I mean, peer pressure is very motivating. But I listened in the morning and I thought, what the hell is this? This is so strange and and unexpected and uncharacteristic of what I usually find but I felt like it was a conversation between generations or something. I felt like it was what different awarenesses and different times in your life, how they can all learn from each other. There's something about the freshness of a 20 year old interest and curiosity that is, if it's held up to the you know the open aperture of someone in their 80s who's lived longer and more light has gone in. And they've exposed uh, like a more detailed and photograph of what they believe life to be about. You know, what could they tell each other? It's not like the old person should negate the wisdom of the primary spark of youth. And there's something where youth can very easily diminish or assume some sort of dilution of that spark has happened in later life. But that's not necessarily true. In fact, it can be the opposite. There can be such a closed down, you know, kernel of obstinance in someone young and something completely open and lucid and wonderful about someone older. And I suppose because I'm in this mid forties crucible of, I want to aspirationally age. I want so badly for someone to wave that next magic wand over me and say, you will have a warm and loving attitude towards yourself as you get older and not do that external sense of self version of aging. That's going to totally diminish me if I buy into that. And so weirdly, Of Womankind is sort of just a conversation between these decades, all these different decades comparing notes. A, a tarot kind. card for all the world, unlikely to apologize, just to overthrow a couple words that the body of politics deserves. Just look what's happening to her Just look what's happening to her Hugging pepper spray at night We check under our cars To navigate the settlement Be exact
1: Thanks once again to Leslie Feist. Feist, thank you for being with us on Shiros.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice talking to you.
1: Many thanks once again to Feist for being with us. Her sixth album, Multitudes, is available now on Polydor Records. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at She Rose Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review. wherever. Whenever you listen to your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. until next time remember music is our superpower i'm carmel holt thanks for listening